Yeah, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much to the Royal Irish Academy for this invitation. I'd also like to mention that they were also kind enough to give my father, Ryan Cantrell, some grant aid when he was first publishing his Memorials of the Dead. Now, and I also would like to apologize also for my Polish pronunciation. It's still a bit of a minefield for me. Um, okay, so when my grandfather, Wacław Tadeusz Dzibzinski, arrived in Ireland in 1929 as Consul General, accompanied by his wife Janina and five-year-old daughter Christina, little did they realize that they would spend the rest of their lives in Ireland. This was never the plan. This, so this talk will now cover his career as music critic, editor, soldier, diplomat and journalist in Ukraine, Poland and Ireland. Uh, this is what photographs that were taken in newspapers in 1929 on his arrival. For some strange reason, the media also always called him Venceslas, which is always uh, incorrect. He was born in Kiev in 1883 to a well-off landowning family of ancient nobility originally from Volhynia. His mother, Maria Molsky, was a talented musician who studied clavier and singing as a teenager in the Franz Liszt University of Music in Weimar in 1876 and 1877 and received Liszt's applause at a public concert. But due to her mother's illness, she returned home early uh, and then married uh, his father, Romold. Um, he writes, the private concerts were arranged in our house, which was simply vibrating with Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin, Liszt, Tchaikovsky, and later Wagner. Among other musicians who used to play in our house was an elderly gentleman by the name of O'Connor, a Polonized Irishman. He qualified in law in 1907 and received a diploma in composition from the Kiev branch of the Russian School of Music, later the Kiev Conservatoire around the same time. He joined the Gina Kujowski, the Daily Kiev, a Polish newspaper that was founded in, 19, in early 1906 at the end of that year. He later joined the editorial staff and became its main music critic. Its coverage was international. Taking Ireland as an example, an obituary from Michael Davos uh, as an independence leader was published in May 1906. The 1916 rebellion received daily coverage for about two weeks, though the first report gave Thomas Connolly and the agitator Larkin as the alleged leaders. Accuracy improved thereafter. This was followed by detailed political and constitutional analysis, articles in Roger Casement and, and anniversary articles in 1917 and 1918. This is a um, photo from the 1890s. Now, these newspaper articles, I, cover, I tracked down about 200 of them published between 1906 and 1916. Um, the reason for the decline in 1914 is because the paper has survived very badly after that period. Um, and this is basically the season of, of coverage. The season was basically during the winter with a break for Christmas, and by during the summer, uh, everybody went on holidays. I mean, during the summer season, he traveled around Europe, including Beirut, because he was a very great fan of Wagner and the Russian Empire. And on one occasion, he spotted Rasputin in St. Petersburg. 
As I said, he was a dedicated follower of Wagner and published this critical essay in 1909 based on articles from the paper, though he subsequently wrote far more. If there was a Wagner concert in town, he was sure to be there. At this time, Kiev had a vibrant multicultural music and drama scene, which included Singh's Playboy of the Western World. This lasted throughout the First World War. The newspaper folded in late 1919 when the plant was destroyed in the Bolshevik Revolution. It was revived by the Polish army while in occupation for six weeks in 1920, of which one issue survives. And in it, there was a, a choice for the Polish community of six plays, one opera and one symphony concert. The Polish people in Kiev strongly held on to the culture for as long as possible. During this time, he gave two public performances. He played a, a composition based on the poems of Zygmunt Mosiewicz in December 1909 for the centenary celebrations of the Polish Romantic poet Julius Słowacki and at a small Chopin event in May 1910. The same year, a delegation from the newspaper attended the Chopin Festival at Lviv, now Lviv in Ukraine, which is where he first met Ignacy Paderewski. This was extensively news reported in the newspaper, and here's a quote from one of his articles. So he was a great fan of Paderewski. He became the leading pre-war music intellectual among the Polish community in Kiev, but how he avoided getting married, I do not know. In earlier years, he had undergone compulsory military officer training in the 9th Hussars, became an, an ensign, and resigned on grounds of ill health in 1906. This was a common way of, of, not, of avoiding being in the Russian army. However, during World War I, he was called up and after some months in the Western Front, transferred to near Kharkov as ADC to the commanding officer. This is where he witnessed the Russian army's collapse in the Bolshevik Revolution. His view was that the mass conscription created disaffection due to insufficient food, accommodation, military training, arms and clothing that was exploited by Bolshevik propaganda. He had little respect for Tsar Nicholas as a military leader. He joined, after the, this collapse, he joined the Association of Polish Military in Kiev, becoming a vice president and minister of plenipotentiary. He assisted in the creation of a new Polish army from the collapsed Russian army, which subsequently went to Odessa, then under the control of the Triple Détente. And when they abandoned the city in 1919, this army were the last to leave. They marched to Warsaw and integrated with the newly independent Polish army. The rest of his family escaped to Warsaw via Constantinople at this time. The destruction of his Kiev home included a Gunnari violin, an Amati cello, and a concert piano. It was then in Warsaw that he had his second meeting with Paderewski, who was at that time president or prime minister of Poland, who appointed him to the Polish Foreign Office and probably awarded him this medal for his role in Kiev. These medals are all here, the one on the, on the right. He writes, I am proud to think that it was his signature that appointed me to the Ministry of External Affairs as Assistant Chief of Personnel. From then his life was focused on diplomacy. He was later promoted to Chief of Personnel and was involved in the integration and Foreign Office training programs. 
No doubt he was influential in the appointment of his sister, Marie, who was, became secretary to the Polish consulate in Zurich in Switzerland for a couple of years before she joined the League of Nations. He took time off to act as intelligence officer in the 101st Light Horse Regiment in the Volunteer Army during the Battle of Warsaw in 1920, when the Russian army was comprehensively beaten. Yeah, and that's the medal on the right where he got for the Battle of Warsaw. Meanwhile, in January 1920, aged 37, he married Janina Bronisława Ochoka, born in 1893, the daughter of a well-off merchant, uh, Warsaw merchant. She studied philosophy in the Warsaw University from 1917 to 1919 and was information officer for the Polish Red Cross in 1919. She later spent a year in the Sorbonne studying art history and was involved on her return to Warsaw in the development of rural textile crafts, particularly in linen weaving. Stanislav there was, was actually born in Dobrova near Katowice in 1863. Uh, Amelia Zidok was born in Berdychev, which is about 100 kilometers southwest of Kiev in Ukraine. Uh, Amelia's brother, uh, Anthony Carroll, married Stanislav's sister in 1890. At that time, Anthony Carroll was a judicial, judicial inspector in, near Tomsk, out in Siberia. And later, in, after 1919, he joined the Supreme Court in Warsaw. Meanwhile, Janina's brother also became a judge, so there was a lot of them. Um, but this whole genealogy side of it, I'm still working on. After some years in Warsaw, he then served two years as a diplomat in Estonia. This is Janina again, and this is the viewpoint looking over Tallinn. Uh, he was involved with treaty negotiations with the Baltic nations, the development of trade links, and was awarded the Cross of Liberty, Grade 3, Class 1, in 1925, the only Polish diplomat to receive this honor class. This is the memorial in Tory Church in Estonia. He is second on, uh, on the list, uh, but there are many well-known names uh, on that list, including Piłsudski, Sigurowski, and a number of others. He was recalled in 1926 and became chief of secret correspondence of the Foreign Office in Warsaw. But over this time, the, the Foreign Office came under the total control of Piłsudski's followers who sidelined sidelined all independent civil servants. He was never attached to any political wing, but remained as an independent Democrat. While he admired Piłsudski for his role in liberating the country, he had reservations about his political leadership which he saw as autocratic and anti-democratic. However, he so wholly supported Piłsudski's attempt to create a multinational alliance among the Baltic nations as a security bulwark against Russian expansionism. He had little affinity with the National Democrats since he disagreed with their minorities policy. Coming from a minority in the Ukraine, he understood the issues and believed that the multi-ethnic principles of the medieval Polish Empire were the way forward. This, however, was against the early 20th century political flow against multi-ethnic empires to the creation of ethnic-based nation-states. His ideal politician was the 16th century Jan Zamoyski and among his contemporaries Ignacy Paderewski and Władysław Sikorski. 
As a result, when expected to be retired, he has sufficient influence to be offered a diplomatic post in Ireland in 1929, which he accepted. He was 47 years old. Now, Poland and Ireland shared the same religious fervor for Catholicism and had experienced a similar type of past and present, a glorious history, invasions and conquest, confiscation and religious discrimination, noble resistance and heroic sacrifice, struggles for and with independence. Both were emerging proud nations finding their place in the world's polity in the aftermath of a time of European-wide destructive warfare between 1914 and 1920. The Irish attitude was positive. First, he was respected as one of the first diplomats to arrive in the Free State. He was admired as a charming, cultured, sophisticated, unassuming diplomat, aristocratic gentleman who spoke six languages fluently, composed and played classical music, was an author, traveler, diplomat, meddled cavalry officer, and furthermore, a victim of the godless Bolsheviks. He soon got to know the Irish elite, a small network of revolutionaries turned politicians, clerics, academics, military officers, aristocrats, and commercial leaders. He lectured regularly, particularly to the Rotary Club, assiduously promoted trade links, and made a study of the development of Irish constitution from 1922, as well as his regular reports from Ireland to Warsaw. Um, he never published his studies on the Irish constitution, but what I have discovered, I have published on my website, um, and I've left a business card there for, so anything, any, anything you want to, a lot of the detail that I'm, that I'm talking about now is actually on this website. Between 1932 and 1939, he acted as a guide to many prominent Polish visitors to these shores, such as the pilots of Volodymyr Klitsch and Adam Kovacic, who planned to fly from Ireland to the USA in 1929. Also, the composer Ignacy Paderewski, Karnel Hond, historians Oskar Halecki and Uvachla Barovi, Kazimir Ilokovich, the poet who had been Marshal Piłsudski's private secretary. However, in there was a change in 1931 when the Polish Foreign Office in a major retrenchment of overseas representation closed the consulate and he and his sickest secretary and assistant consul were recalled. Not finding any suitable employment in Poland and out of sympathy with the increasing authoritarian government, he offered to become an honorary diplomat. This was accepted and he returned in Ireland in 1932 in time for the Eucharistic Congress which he saw as the highlight of his diplomatic career in Ireland. And here we have Cardinal Hond with two of the, two of the major clerics and uh, Governor James McNeil. Uh, this was the time when uh, Governor James McNeil and Eamon de Valera were having their major controversial, um, major controversy which led to his re retirement uh, early. Um, from then on, from 1932 onwards, he's devoted his time to writing articles about Ireland and about Irish political issues for the Warsaw Courier, the Courier Warszawski, and contributed to the 1937 Polish Encyclopedia of Political Sciences. 
For these seven years, he was the mediator, a main source of information uh, about Poland to the Irish and about Ireland to the Polish. He also took advantage of the Anglo-Irish trade war in the 1930s to in increase trade between the two countries. He lectured on Polish history and culture in university colleges of Dublin, Cork and Galway, hosted a, uh, a Polish music hour on Radio Aaron and tried to improve his terrible golf. It was in Milltown Golf Course that he first met Douglas Hyde, which ultimately led to his invitation to the present president to attend the Irish football match. Its unintended consequences highlighted some of the perils of international diplomacy. This was just before the Irish won, actually. 2-1, I think. Um, the eruption of war in 1939 was not, was not unexpected. This is the cover of the Dublin Opinion on the 1st of January 1939. His position as an honorary diplomat was very shadow indeed, according to a Department of External Affairs memo, but this was solved when he was reappointed as a full diplomat in 1940. He opened an office in Fitzwilliam Square, from where he circulated the many publications of the London government in exile and contributed a book of his own. This is uh, also in Dublin Opinion of October. This was uh, after that, the Dublin Opinion completely uh, stopped all European coverage as part of the censorship. So this is the book that he published, Poland, Lights and Shadows of an Ancient Nation. This went to three editions and cost uh, 75 pounds per edition for the printing. His postal bill was very high, as his mating list included members of the Oireachtas, archbishops, bishops, and the national press. He responded to personal queries for the general public and circulated the Polish fortnightly review and other books, for which he received many thank you cards. And this is one of them from Jack B. Yeats. During the war, he hosted annual events in the consulate. These were a mix of music and drama, which were attended by Allied diplomats and many well-known people of Dublin. In one police piece, in one concert that I believe he composed in Kiev, uh, he performed a piece of music um, along with a poem, Order Reigns in Warsaw, that was written by John Betjeman, British press, the British press attaché and later poet laureate of England. However, he ran afoul of Ireland's strict neutrality policy when against the advice of the Department of External Affairs, he invited wing commander Count Przemowski to a public lunch with British diplomats that resulted in him being barred from, visited, from visiting Douglas Hyde and Ars in Uchtheron. The Department of External Affairs noted that he was not in favor of Irish neutrality, though recognized the reason why. His mother, who was in her 80s and brother, died in Warsaw during the war in unknown circumstances. Meanwhile, in 1943, his sister Marie, who had left the League of Nations in 1937, was stranded in Nice in France, unable to leave until she could prove that she was Aryan and Christian. There was a whole file in the Department of External Affairs about this. However, she managed to escape in, uh, independently to Lisbon, where she worked for the Polish Red Cross till the end of the war. After some years of seeking work in Ireland and England, she returned to Geneva, where she was employed by the International Telecommunications Union and died there in 1964. Around the same time, their daughter, Christina, immediately she turned 18, went to London, 
without telling her parents and joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, where she served with the Meteorological Section in London and Oban in Scotland. At the end of the war in 1945, when the British government decided to recognize a Stalin-sponsored communist government, he was given the choice of who to represent. And since there was no way that he would have anything to do with the communist government, he chose the London government in exile. This was his second exile. Meanwhile, the Irish government anti-communist ideologies matched his. There were discussions about the possible transfer of the London government and its archives to Dublin. This was veto vetoed by the London government, though it would not have happened anyway, as the Irish, while offering sanctuary to the Poles as private citizens, would not have welcomed an exiled government. The archives are in the Sikorsky Museum in London. There are all the archives are from the what survives of the Irish uh, archives of the Dublin Consulate are actually online uh, at the Hoover Institute of the, in the USA. So during the early years, uh, the late 40s, he was busy providing identity documents for Polish ex exiles in the UK and around Europe. But subsequently, it was purely a nominal position that became untenable with the fragmentation of the London government in exile in the early 1950s. And finally, in 1954, he retired aged 68 after 25 years as a diplomat in Ireland. He was the longest serving diplomat of independent Ireland. After an unsuccessful attempt to run a small hotel and landscape house, County Limerick, they first moved to Balbriggan and then to Glen Ely, County Wicklow. Their financial situation became difficult and the Irish government granted him a state pension. In his final years, he wrote political articles for the Irish newspapers. These were mostly anti-communist, but looked to the future security of Europe within the Cold War political contest with such titles as United States of Europe, a dream or possibility, which discussed the foundation of a European Union. He died in 1962 and his wife followed him in 1974. They are buried in Redford Cemetery, Greystones County, Wicklow, beside their old friends, Morris Gore, who was over 20 years a Belgian diplomat to Ireland, and his wife, Jean. Their daughter, Christina, who married Brian Cantrell in 1914, which is where I come in, used to whimsically claim that the Irish government refused to recognize any communist government while her father was alive. Though this was a purely political issue, trade was unaffected. It's probably more accurate to say that there was a convergence of political opinions, and it wasn't until 1963, the year after he died, that the Irish finally recognized the de jure status of the Polish communist government, along with 39 other countries, which are mostly Afri ex colonies in Africa and uh, Asia. And then in 1977, formal diplomatic relations opened with the Polish embassy in London. Christina was awarded, uh, posthumously awarded the Order of Merit of the Polish Republic in, in 2016, which is also there, for her services to the Polish culture abroad that included her role as chairperson of the first presidential postal vote in Ireland in 1991, the same year that Ernest Brill was appointed first ambassador to Ireland with the first exchange of diplomatic missions between the two countries. She published his bi biography in 1997, 
which is extensively based on its memoirs, parts of which were in the Irish Times and Irish Independent in the late 1950s. I'm currently annotating these with new research and will hopefully publish them by the end of the year. In conclusion, it was a great pleasure to work with the Polish Embassy to present this exhibition to celebrate 25 years since the exchange of embassies and 87 years of Polish-Irish family links over three generations. Thank you.